that your spirit would move mighty in our hearts and our minds to receive what you want to share with us in our circumstance here and now. What we can take away from your word. To hear what it is you want us to know and what it is you want us to do with this information. So Father, may we rely upon that now. Be with us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's read verses 1 through 5 in Acts chapter 16. Begins by saying, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let's pause there for a moment. Something that takes place here, that happens here, that we need to draw out a little bit. Number one, if we remember the map of, of Paul's first journey, he had left Antioch and went across the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas's hometown. So he traveled across there and he met a Roman official and brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. They left that and then went up into what's called Asia Minor or today it's modern day Turkey. And that's where Mark decided, I don't want to continue on this journey. He goes back to Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas and the team carry on and bring the gospel to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And it was in those places where Paul was persecuted and eventually stoned almost to death. Where they thought they had stoned him to death, dragged him out of the city, and the disciples all gathered around him. He popped up, brushed off his shoulders, and marched right back into the city. Because he said the gospel is too important to allow death to get in the way. Kind of like Jesus, right? <laughs> And so he's now going on the reverse journey. He's going to those cities where he was at the end, Derby and Lystra, where he was stoned. So think about that for a minute. He's saying, we need to go back to the churches to bring them encouragement and see how they're doing after we had presented the gospel and established the church and, and everything else. They need encouragement. We don't know what they're getting, so let's go and visit them again. But they also, at the same time, pick up a new traveling companion named Timothy. And if you're familiar with your Bible, yes, that is the same Timothy that Paul would write to in what we now have in our Bibles as 1st and 2nd Timothy. This is that Timothy. And we learn a little bit more about Timothy in this, in this section. Number one, what does it say about Timothy? That he had a mom who was a believer. So his mom had come to faith, maybe, most likely, on Paul's first missionary journey when he was traveling through those cities. And maybe Timothy as well. But Timothy was raised by his grandma and his mother. We're told that in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Eunice, or Lois, his grandma, was a believer, and his mom, Eunice, was a believer. Raising their son, Timothy, in the faith. But we also learn about his father. But what kind of pops out about the way that Luke is writing this story? That his mom was a believer, but 
his father was Greek. So what can we surmise from that statement? That his dad probably was not a believer. His dad probably, otherwise, they, he probably would have lumped them together as believers, but he didn't. His mom was a believer, but his father was Greek. And so Timothy was raised by his grandma and his mom in the faith. So much so that we read in verse 2 that he was what? He was well known throughout the region. So Timothy was a bold, courageous young man in the faith. To be well known in a couple different cities. Well, how was, we, how was he well known? We can only assume by what we're told. If you're well known, the way that scripture relates that message is that he was a man of character and integrity. And because we're told on a couple of occasions that he was raised in the faith and was a believer, he was probably very vocal about his faith in the Lord in those, in those communities. And so that's kind of what we, we pick up about Timothy. But beyond that, we're told that Paul circumcises him. I don't know if you caught that at all, but didn't we just go through two weeks of our study and one chapter in Acts 15 just previously where these elders and leaders and apostles came together in Jerusalem to debate that very thing. That circumcision was not necessary for the Gentiles for salvation. And here Paul immediately, after having agreed with that decision, circumcises Timothy. Why? What is the purpose of that? Okay, that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time on. Because we walked away from chapter 15 and that council, Paul agreeing with James and the other apostles and elders that circumcision was not a religious practice that was necessary for salvation. He understood that. He would later write to the Romans, uh, or the Roman church in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He would say, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So what is Paul saying? Even though it was something that was practiced, handed down from the original law that God gave his people. But it was not a matter of a physical action that provided salvation. That physical action did not do anything for an individual because it's a matter of the heart. So what is Paul saying? What is he agreeing with in all of scripture? That salvation comes by what? Faith. Belief in the Lord God. And what you do outwardly is a symbol of that, whether for the old law, it was circumcision, or this new church, it was baptism, whatever it might be. It's a matter of the heart and what you believe about God. In fact, I, I kind of want to make this point for us here. What, I want you to answer in your own mind right now. What makes you an American citizen? What makes you a citizen of this country? Yeah, you just, you just nailed it. You're born here. What did you do to deserve that? Nothing. <laughs> if you want to look at it, you want to, we, and we will get spiritual, and we'll get into the word of God, but by God's grace and his sovereignty, he has placed you here 
in this country, in this city, in this area, in this region. But what did you do to manifest that? Nothing. Now, yeah, absolutely. Now, there are a couple of different ways. So what if you are not born in this country? Is there a process to become an American citizen? Yes, it's called naturalization. And it's an interesting process. When you look at it, there are essentially, it boils down to three things that one must do in order to become an American citizen. You have to be at least 18 years old. You have to take a test, be familiar with the Constitution and, and the laws of the land and, and, and have a general knowledge and understanding and, and, and prove that you can speak a little English. And the third interesting factor that I actually learned was you have to be of good moral character. Now, according to the U.S. government website, that's what it says. 18, take the test, be of good moral character. And when you go through all those steps, you can become an American citizen. Now, I want you to think about something. Why, why I'm bringing this up? Because it pertains to what Paul does with Timothy. If we think about this from a biblical perspective, and you think about why you're, what makes you an American citizen, is it the piece of paper that the government gives you? The physical, legal piece of paper that says you are a citizen in order to do certain things here and there, go in and out of the country or, or get a license or do certain things? Yeah, you have to prove that you're a citizen. But what makes you a citizen? I am an American because I believe that this is the country that I live in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when Paul would write later on to the church at Philippi, which we're getting to, he's traveling that direction. He would say in Philippians chapter three, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. But we have to come to believe as children of God. If you are born within the borders of this country, you are automatically a citizen of this country. So if we think about this spiritually, our life in Christ, if we are born again in God's kingdom, we are therefore a citizen of heaven. And how we live our life, what we believe in, what we do, are there certain things that we have to do as, as a part of his kingdom? Yeah, there is. We have to accept that free gift of salvation. We have to be obedient to his laws. And if we are allowing ourselves to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that the spirit does within us, then we will be of good character according to God's kingdom. So what does all this have to do with Timothy? Why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Because he wanted to eliminate any distraction of Paul, or excuse me, of Timothy being Greek. If we're going to minister to the Jews, then I want to eliminate anything that might get in the way of that. Even though I don't believe you need to be circumcised, we're going to go through that process because that could open the door 
to ministry. Well, is that right or wrong? That's not the question. Because we are free in Christ. It's not a matter of the heart. So therefore, if we are going to minister to Jews, Timothy, even though you are part Jew, we're going to do whatever is necessary to eliminate any hindrance that the Jews might have with you as knowing that your father was Greek so that we could freely share the gospel without hindrance. That's why he had him circumcised. Not because it wasn't for Timothy's sake. It wasn't for salvation's sake. It was for the Jews that they may come across to be able to open the door for a gospel conversation. See, salvation is by grace, not legalistic religious practice. We've said that umpteen times throughout our ministry and time as a church. So Paul had Timothy go through it so that they might reach more for Jesus. See, Romans chapter 14, verse 13 says, Never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, Timothy's lack of circumcision could immediately have been a stumbling block in ministering to the Jews who believed in that. So, let's just eliminate that stumbling block physically (laughs) and go through a little painful action to open the door for gospel conversation. Later, Paul would write to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. Was Paul Jewish? Yeah, he was a Pharisee. He was also a Roman citizen. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, not, though not myself being under the law. So even though he was a Pharisee and studied the law, he knew he didn't need to abide by the law in order to receive salvation, but he kept himself in obedience to the law in order that he might win more people to salvation in Jesus Christ. He would go on to say, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So if you hear what Paul is saying, I'm going to do whatever is necessary except crossing the line into sin so that I may win people to Jesus Christ. So for us, are we going to maintain our mindset, our ways, our comfort, our religious practices, and argue people to come to our side of the aisle and win them and argue them to salvation? I don't know if that's ever happened in the history of mankind to debate and argue somebody because you're going to force them to believe what you believe. See, that's not the gospel. Gospel isn't forceful argumentation. It's the free gift of salvation, of peace in Jesus Christ. (laughs) On the flip side of things, it doesn't mean we go off and accommodate and sin 
and do all things that are contrary to God's word just to manipulate people into salvation saying, so I'm going to sin and I'm going to do all this stuff just so I can show you a little bit of Jesus Christ. You won't do that either. Let me give you a couple things. There's something that we need to understand. It's cultural ignorance versus cultural sensitivity. And this is what Paul and Timothy are doing for those they might reach. Now, we need to be culturally sensitive to the people that we are talking to. Let me give you a couple examples from my experience. I had the opportunity once to go down to Belize on a mission trip. And I was learning more about the people down in Belize. And in this one community that we were ministering in, it was well known that the men of the town would gather together after work and drink and drink and drink and drink to the point of absolute drunkenness to the, to the extreme. That was expected and it was of the norm unless you were a part of the church. That was a normal habit. So when I caught on to that and I was given the opportunity to share God's word in a church service, I used that as an example because I knew that was going to get the attention of the men in that room when I spoke to exactly what it was that they were engaged in. So I was a little sensitive knowing that was going to be a point of contention. But the moment I started talking about drinking and drunkenness, the room got eerily quiet because I was sensitive to the spirit speaking to people directly to what they needed to hear and how it applied to their life and freedom in Christ. Now, another example that was being culturally sensitive, but let me give you an example of where I just dropped the ball together and was culturally ignorant. I had another opportunity to go to Zambia and ministered over in, in Southern Africa. And I was, again, sharing. We were doing some teacher training for uh, educators in their school, but I was giving a little devotional before we got into some lessons. And I was using an example of something that helped me kind of change things up because we can get into a routine a lot of times, right? We go through a routine. We like our routine. Every day we do this, 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 and this. And if anything messes that routine up, it upsets us. But doesn't God change our routine often? And so one of the things I adapted when I was in education, because I would travel the exact same way, the exact same route, taking the exact same right turns, left turns, and park in the exact same spot. So at one point, somebody gave me the advice saying, hey, you want to, because I was getting a little like bored and, and, you know, the monotony of year after year doing the same thing over and over and over. Somebody said, hey, why don't you try a different route to work? Give yourself more time and, and go a different way. Change your scenery. I'm like, it's an interesting idea. A little tiny change changes your perspective. So as I was sharing that idea with them, what example did I use in being ignorant to their culture? Well, I talked about driving to work differently. I said, you guys know when you get in your car in the morning, you come to this place and you, and you come to work and you get prepared, you typically find yourself driving the exact same way every single day. And I was waiting for a response. And what did I get? Nothing. In fact, they looked at me like I was dumb. Like I, I, there was confusion. I was like, is everything okay? And I carried on. I just kind of let it go and moved on. And, and then I found out later on, somebody came to me and said, Cam, every teacher that you just spoke to, every member of the administrative team, not a single one of them own a vehicle. 
So when you used an example of driving to work, that made no sense to them. So when I'm talking culturally to them and trying to connect with them and encourage them, I'm culturally ignorant. And so when I use an example, what does that do? It immediately builds a wall between them and myself. Now, I was able to break that down in a different way. So learning from that experience, I thought, okay, I was able to go back to Zambia the next year and was able to share in one of their church services. And as I was preparing a message, I was talking about how we need to look back on the things that have happened to us to remind us of God's goodness. Using the Exodus story and using Joshua and, and, and those things, the reminders of God's goodness. And, and so I had a lot of examples in that message. And my initial examples, I was going to use, what are some of the things that remind us of the blessings God has given us here in, in, in our country? And so what comes to mind as a former history teacher? Well, the Statue of Liberty. Maybe some of the battle sites that we have on the East Coast, like Gettysburg and Yorktown and some of those other things. And I had those written in my message, and, I, and, and God paused. He paused my hand and said, you want to lose them again? So I had to stop, and I had to go in and research. Because the, probably 99.9% .9 of the people in that room have never seen the Statue of Liberty. They wouldn't maybe even know what the Statue of Liberty is. They would have no idea of anything about American battlefields because that's not even mentioned in their curriculum or their understanding. So I did a little research. I said, okay, so what do they have here in Lusaka, the capital city of Zambia, that might fit? And I came across in my research, they have a tree that has a fence around it in, it's a town called Indola, N-D-O-L-A, Indola. And it's a slave tree. And as I did more research on that tree, that was a tree that when in the early 1900s, when slaves were sold, that was the primary location where they would go to be sold. They would go to the slave tree. That was their slave market. But at the moment I mentioned the slave tree in Andola, they look at this, this American from California and they went, Wait, you just mentioned something about our culture, our history. And then I moved on and, and I, I spoke about something else. I said, do you guys know about the freedom statue of Zenko Mpundo Mutombo? And they went, like this, this, this white boy from America just kind of spoke our language and mentioned an advocate of freedom that's a statue in their, their capital city of this gentleman who, with chains being broken because that signified in 1964 when they gained their independence from Britain and became an independent country of Zambia. So the moment I use their language and an understanding of what they've gone through, does that fit a little bit better with me trying to share the gospel with them? that I'm culturally sensitive to their history and what they've gone through and what makes sense to them. So I bring all that back to why did Paul circumcise Timothy as a grown man to put him through physical pain simply to open the door for a gospel conversation. That's why it was done. Does that make sense? So when we are sharing the gospel or we are going to share our faith or we're in contact with our community around here, I want you to pause for a moment 
before you launch into your own experiences, your own stories that applied to you and expect that they're just going to apply to anybody you talk about, you got to be careful about the wall you might build in front of somebody that is going to hinder them from hearing more about the hope you have in Jesus. And then maybe listen a little bit more to their story. Understand them a little bit better. And then when you can find that common ground, now that eliminates any hindrance to the gospel. So, essentially, according to Pastor David Guzik, he said, Paul did things for the sake of love. The circumcision of Timothy was done for the sake of love. Because he would never do something for the sake of just trying to please God through legalism. It's love for God and love for others. Be all things to all people so that we might win some to Jesus. Let's look at verses 6 through 10 in Acts chapter 16. In verse 6 it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, a lot of, lot of cities, a lot of words in there. And that, that's not the important part, but two things I initially want to point out. Why, as we started with, would the Spirit of God say no to the expansion of the kingdom in the area that Paul wanted to go into? Why would he say no? The expansion of the gospel is a good thing. We're going to reach more people with the kingdom of God and provide salvation, but sometimes the Holy Spirit says no. It's just how we need to look at this. He didn't say no because you're going the wrong direction. He didn't say no because you're doing the wrong thing. He said no because this isn't my plan yet. I want you to hear that. It's not my plan, what I'm having you do yet. So two times we see the Spirit said, no, you're not going to go into that area. But then it even said they attempted to go into a certain area, and it said the Spirit of Christ said no. So what we need to remember is who initially commissioned Paul and Barnabas at that time to go on these journeys? Who commissioned them? The other apostles? Elders of the church in Jerusalem? No. It was the Holy Spirit. Because in chapter 14, if we were, or excuse me, 13, in verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, God said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So if God calls you out, God is going to lead you. Therefore, you need to be submissive to where God wants you to go because God has a plan that he is going to fulfill. 
So sometimes what may seem like a no, what may seem like a closed door, is God saying, I've got something else for you to do. Don't worry about them. Now, that's a nice thing to say, and I think we can all agree with that to some extent. But what does that do to us internally when God tells us no? Well, God, that's not what I want to do. I wanted to go here. I wanted to do this. God says, no. That's not what I have for you right now. Gently, lovingly, he says, remember who's in control. Remember the sovereignty I have over everything. It's okay. Follow me. And that's what he wants us to remind us of. So it would be the Spirit of God who commissioned them. It would be the Spirit of God that guided them throughout their mission. Don't forget the promise of Matthew 28. When Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission, he said, go therefore and and make disciples. But what did he say at the end? Behold, I will be with you wherever you go. But I may need to correct your direction a little bit, but I'll be with you. And that's why I believe Luke would include the spirit of Christ. Because it was Christ's commission, Christ's calling, that Christ's promise that he would be with them always. So when God says no, it's not because, excuse me, it is because he's directing our path. He decides where we go. Isaiah 59, or excuse me, 55 verse 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is sovereign. God's in control. Therefore, we need to humble ourselves, fall under his leadership, submit ourselves to him, and say, Okay, God, take me wherever you want me to go. He gives us the freedom to go, but we're going to fall under his direction. One of my favorite verses that I learned a lot from is Proverbs 21, verse 1. It says, For the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He directs it where it goes. I can go into a big old story about this, but I've used this example before. If you've ever been on a river, river rafting or inner tubing or whatever else, and the, the, the river guide is telling you, paddle, 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 to stay in line with the river, but ultimately... What's taking you where it's going to go? The river. You try and direct yourself and you try and keep yourself safe, but the river is going to take you wherever it's going to take you. If the river decides it's going to flip your boat over and you get to swim, that's what happens. So, But we can still be prepared for that. But that is the sovereignty of God, isn't it? We are in his hand. A stream of water is in God's hand. He is going to direct it where it goes. He gives us the freedom. Let me give you one more quick visual example. This may make not a whole lot of sense, but I don't even know if this is really accurate, but somebody said this and it just kind of clarified things for me. It's almost like, and and again, all due respect, please understand my heart. It's like we're rats in a maze. And God's the scientist. And from his vision, does he see the whole maze? Does he see every turn? Does he know where the beginning is and where the end is? And he sets us in that maze. And what is the freedom that he gives us to do? Go this way, turn right. Go this way, turn left. Anybody ever ran into a brick wall? Anybody ever ran into a dead end? Did you just stay there and stare at the wall until it opened up? 
No, you turn around and you go the other direction. Because ultimately, God is going to get you where you need to go. And sometimes that needs to come through a little bit of discipline. But if we're obedient and we learn from him who created the maze, he'll get us to where we need to be and get that golden cheese in the end. Cheesy, I know. But if that gives you kind of an understanding of that idea, we may not see the next turn, but he does. And we're under his control. And hopefully that gives us peace. That should give us a little bit of calm, release some pressure. That yeah, I'm going to make decisions. Some will be okay. Some will not be okay. But if I'm willing to submit myself to the sovereign authority of God who knows and loves me and cares for me, I'll get to where I need to be. But sometimes he says no. Sometimes it's a closed door until we find our way in the direction that he wants us to go. Simply mean a closed door is God's plan. He is not dictated by our feelings or what we want to do. He is going to direct according to his sovereign plan. This is the difference between having a meistic view of life or a theistic view of life. Meistic says, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And every once in a while, I'll recognize God and say, thank you, but I'm just going to continue to do what I want to do. Or a theistic view, a Godistic view says, I'm going to do whatever you want to do and be sensitive to your spirit and go wherever you want me to go. And if that door closes, then I need to make a turn and go in a different direction. But God is ultimately in control. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And what? He will make your paths straight. Or other uh, references say, He will direct your paths. That's trust. So God reveals his plan for their mission through a vision. He gives them a vision of a man in Macedonia or in Greece. What we now know of as the continent of Europe. And so they go. You hear the immediacy? They knew that was a vision from God. So they immediately picked up and traveled on. Let's continue on and we'll we'll reveal this final story in this chapter or at least in our study for today. Verses 11 through 15. So, so setting sail from Troas, they make a direct voyage to Samothrace, which is simply an island on the way to where they were going. They stop there, they rest, and on the following day, they move on to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained there in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, meaning she was begging not letting them go until they would come to her house and and spend some more time there. So here's the blessing of what we've been talking about. God's sovereignty, God's plan. The initial establishment of the gospel on a new continent, the very initial beginnings of another church plant 
in this town, this Roman colony called Philippi. And if you're making the connections or if that sounds familiar, Paul would eventually write a letter to the Philippians, this church that was established initially with the gospel presentation to Lydia. And then as we'll see more later on in chapter 16, more people come to faith in Philippi and the church is established there. But really quickly, there's no mention of a synagogue. Paul, in all his first trips on his first journey, went to synagogue, went to synagogue, went to synagogue because the gospel was for the Jews first and then the Gentiles. But there's no mention of a synagogue. By tradition, it took 10 Jewish men in a town to establish a synagogue. So what does that tell us about Philippi? There weren't 10 God-fearing, faithful men to establish the synagogue. So by tradition, the law would say that if they were go to a pure area, which would typically be by a body of water, a lake or a river, then they could worship there in the absence of a synagogue. And so that's why Paul, going into the town, didn't see a synagogue. And so they went outside the gates to the riverside, it said. And there they met with some women who were gathering together to worship. So what does Paul do? Oh, no men? Let's move on. No. The gospel's for everyone. Even in that day, 2000, excuse me, 2,000 years ago, in that culture, women were not high on the ladder. But yet he sat down, him and his team, because they were God-fearing women. He said, the gospel is for everyone. And he sat down and presented the gospel to them. And it's made mention of one particular lady by the name of Lydia. She's a seller of purple goods. What does that mean? Is that important? It just simply means that purple dye in that era was extremely valuable, which means that if her business was to sell purple goods to royalty and upper class, she was probably very wealthy. And she was from Thyatira, which if you look on the map and if you go back, if you're a visual person, Thyatira is a region and a town in Asia, modern-day Turkey, not the Asia we think of, but modern-day Turkey, that Paul was not allowed to go into. Had he gone into that region, Ephesus, Thyatira, Bithynia, other towns in that region were right there. But God said, no, not yet. And so we're starting to see the connection of why God led them where he did. So granted, the vision might have been a man from Macedonia from that region. That didn't matter. There were God-fearing women in prayer. And maybe it was those prayers of those women that God used to pull Paul and his team over to Philippi to present the gospel with the initial establishment of a new church. But she said she's already seeking God. We found that a similarity to that when we met Cornelius back in chapter 10. Cornelius, another God-fearing man that Peter was brought to through a vision, right? Cornelius had a vision of Peter coming to him. Peter had a vision of God sending him to Cornelius. They met in Cornelius' house and salvation is presented. Salvation is accepted by Cornelius and his household. What do we see here? Very similar circumstances because she's already seeking God. And it said the Lord opened her heart to pay attention you see who's in control? Nothing that we do, nothing that we say, it's important that we're willing, 
But nothing that we say is going to matter unless God opens the individual's heart to hear and listen and accept the gospel of Jesus. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God is the one that leads people to salvation. But we just need to be willing to go and we need to be willing to share. Being sensitive to the Spirit's leading for conversations we might have with somebody. But it's up to God to determine the outcome. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 says, Paul speaking to the church there, I planted, meaning I planted the church here, and another individual by the name of Apollos watered, meaning he came after and continued to share the gospel. But he says, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. See, that's the sovereignty of God to determine where people go to determine what happens in his plan for his kingdom, for his glory. And salvation is by him through his son that he sent as a gift for us to receive. So she believes she's baptized. She takes that step of obedience to show on the outside what had been done for her on the inside. And her entire family comes to faith as well. She's found faithful and hospitable, which is the mark of every believer. She welcomes them in, and that's where we're going to stop our study for now, for today. But let me bring some final thoughts to this, and we'll, we'll close our time. So ultimately, what we've been talking about is the sovereignty of God. Right? God's plan, God's sovereignty of calling certain people, sending them a certain way, determining their path and where they go or where they don't go, all for the salvation of what we read today, all those hundreds of miles of travel. And what was the result? At least in the, in the immediate, for one individual and one family. But that was enough and that was worth it to potentially see persecution again in those former towns that they went to initially to encourage the church. And that's what I want to focus on. We talked about the sovereignty of God, but one thing we also saw throughout our, these 15 verses, another word I want to bring to light right now as we close. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. So Paul starts this second journey with his team to sacrifice the comfort of home Staying around what he knew, saying, well, I did my job. I checked my missionary box. Now I can just be comfortable and do what I'm going to do. But no, he sacrifices comfort and he travels hundreds of miles to go and encourage the churches that he met, but also venture into new territory, not knowing what he would encounter. His team, they were willing to potentially sacrifice their life because, again, they were visiting towns where they once stoned Paul almost to death. So they were willing to sacrifice potentially their lives for the encouragement of the church by returning to where they were once persecuted. They sacrificed time because hundreds of miles in this day and age is not, I mean, we can travel hundreds of miles in half a day. But for them, it was by land 
by sea, traveling mountains and, and all this stuff, hundreds of miles. It took a lot of time. They had to sacrifice their time by giving themselves to an unknown timetable for the sake of the gospel. So that's what's called a sacrificial lifestyle. Timothy, what did he sacrifice? We can call it pride. <laughs> for the guys in the room, that's pride. But also a piece of his flesh. He was able to sacrifice a little bit of pride in that sense. Because he could have stood up and said, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. I believe in Jesus Christ. That's enough for me. They can just deal with it. No, he sacrificed pride and he sacrificed a piece of himself to do what was necessary so that he wouldn't hinder the gospel. Paul sacrificed cultural expectations and sat down opposite women and presented the gospel. He didn't say, oh, there's no synagogue, there's no official church building for me to walk into and present my message of glory. No, it didn't matter. He saw opportunity, was led by the Holy Spirit to do what was necessary. Again, sacrificing cultural expectation. Remember when Jesus sat down with the woman at the well? A lot of sacrifice involved in things that we may not really understand, but how can that apply to us today? But one other is Lydia. What did she sacrifice? Potentially, and we're not told, but potentially her wealth, her career. Because maybe a, a woman in that, in that era, one, owning a business, being very wealthy, probably had a lot of spotlight on her. She had a home in Thyatira. She had a home in Philippi. She potentially could have sacrificed her riches. Has she continued in the selling of purple career world? Maybe. We don't know. Could have. But she also would have come up against a lot of persecution for her faith, wouldn't she? Not only culturally, but amongst all the, the Jews in the area and in and around wherever she was. So she could have sacrificed quite a bit. But all of this perfectly mimics what Jesus did for us. How he lived his life for us. May I remind us again of Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Same verse in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. It says, Christ came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The ministry of Christ was summed up in service and sacrifice. Under the sovereignty of God, service and sacrifice. In all that God calls us to do, even in the simple routine of our day-to-day, -day, we are to live out a sacrificial lifestyle for the sake of the kingdom of God. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what I love about that verse is in other translations, instead of spiritual worship, it's rendered your rational service. So present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your rational service. Do you hear that? You sacrifice you for the sake of serving sovereign God. 
In Hebrews 13, verse 15 says, Though him then let us continually offer, excuse me, through him let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So our offering, our sacrifice to the Lord is our worship of him. Our sacrifice by doing what he calls us to do, to do the good things according to his word, is worship and offering of a good sacrifice to him because it sacrifices us. That's why we deny ourselves. Because it's all about the kingdom of God. All of our life is a sacrifice of self to elevate the glory of God. To count others worthy of the hope of salvation. Doing all we need to do without sin. Remember, we don't cross that line of sinning and then try and manipulate people into salvation. But all we need to do without sin in order to reach more for the gospel. It's a sacrifice of self. And there's a line that a friend gave me, and I'll I'll close with this line. I'll just let you sit with it. He said this, There is no service without sacrifice. There is no service without sacrifice. So sit on that for a little while. Process that according to the sovereignty of God and what he's called us to do. Let's pray.